my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. This is going to be the first uh, of what I hope is a new trend uh, with the Bible Lab. One of the things that I want to do is I want to help us see what God is saying to us through his word, first and foremost, about himself, but second, about us. And when God speaks to us, what he's typically going to say is he's going to show us things about our life that we need to change, things that we need to start believing, things that we need to stop doing or start doing. This is how God speaks to us. When he finds us and he loves us and pursues us, he finds us as sinners. And when God saves us and puts his Holy Spirit in us, we know that he does not instantly transform us into sinless beings who will never struggle with temptation again, but rather God begins to work in us through his spirit and through his word to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. And so what I want to do at the close of every single book that we study, I want us to take an episode where we just look at some takeaways, some application points that whatever particular book, you know, today it's going to be the book of Genesis, that's what we've been studying for the last week or so. What does this book say to us and how can we start to obey this in our lives? Now, a couple of things right off the bat. One, these are not original to me. I'm getting these from the uh, student edition of the Reformation Study Bible. And and so this is a great resource uh, that I'm using. So this is not something that I have come up with. Many of these are going to sound familiar to you. Uh, The second thing that I want to establish is the way change works. So uh, there was a pastor at my uh, previous church who made a great point that if you are on, let's just take prayer, for example, if you are on a scale of one to 10, if you are right now at a two on prayer, the goal is not to get to a 10. If you are at a two, the goal should be to get to a three or maybe just a 2.1 and then a 2.2 change happens slowly. We're looking for progress, not perfection. The third thing that I would want to point out is if you take all 16 of these lessons and possible applications from the book of Genesis, and you try to change 16 things about your life, you are guaranteed to have a mess and a lot of frustration. And so what I would encourage you to do is pick one thing, One thing that the Lord lays on your heart through your reading of Genesis, through your listening to these podcast episodes, and pick one area and strive to make progress. One fourth and final thing before we jump in, due to time constraints, I don't want this to get much past 15 or 20 minutes, I'm not going to read the scripture references, which hurts my heart. Uh, I'm going to say them, you know, for example, I might say like, you know, as Genesis 1-1 tells us, uh, and I would encourage you to go and look those up. I want as much as possible to anchor what it is I'm telling you to do in what the text of Scripture says. And so I don't want to make it up myself. I want you to be able to check. Uh, but I won't be able to read all these passages of Scripture. This episode will be 30 or 45 minutes long, and I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to say the Scripture references. So without any further ado, let's dive in. And let's, let's look at some lessons that we can learn from the book of Genesis. Genesis lays the foundation for helping us understand who God is, what his purposes are, and what his purposes are for our lives. And so here are some lessons we can learn from this amazing book. First, God is the creator of all things. And we know that God creates all things. That's what the first two chapters of the Bible are about. And since God is the creator of all things, that means he made us. That means he knows what's best for us. That means he has authority over us. And so my question for you is, does your life reflect his lordship? 
Does your life look like you acknowledge, gladly acknowledge, that you are the creation and someone else is the creator and they are in charge? Something to consider. Second lesson for us from the book of Genesis, God calls us to reproduce his image throughout the earth and rule over creation to glorify him. We are made in God's image. Only humans can have that said of us. And God desires that we would reproduce and multiply. And yes, that does mean physically. Children are a blessing. I'm recording this in America in the 21st century. And tragically, many people in America, uh, due to some terrible, terrible deceptions that are circulating throughout our culture, view children as burdens. Many people don't want to have children because either A, they think, well, kids will you know kill my fun or you know, kids will ruin the environment. And that's just not at all the biblical picture. Children are a blessing. But also, we reproduce God's image through sharing the gospel and seeing people become sons and daughters of God. And once we do that, we teach them how to share the gospel and see other people become sons and daughters of God. We want to make disciples. We want to proclaim Christ and reproduce both physically and spiritually so that the glory of God fills the earth. We've also been given dominion over this earth, and we have been given dominion to cultivate the earth, to take it from where it is to where God wants it to go. We have not been given dominion to abuse the earth. That is not, this is not a license to dump toxic waste or burn down a rainforest. It's not at all what this is. But human beings are supposed to cultivate the earth. We are supposed to take things and make things out of them. And we do that to the glory of God. Third, marriage is designed by God to be between one man and one woman. God designed marriage, and therefore human beings have neither the right nor the ability to change what marriage is. We can no more say that marriage is between two men or two women than we can say, you know what, triangles have four sides now. Squares have five. That's just how it is now. No, that's impossible. That is not within our ability to do, and neither is it within our ability to change what marriage is. So what are some takeaways for us as Christians? One, does your life reflect God's design for both singleness and marriage. One of the great tragedies of our age is that Christians spend a lot of energy denouncing homosexuality and so-called gay marriage, while at the same time viewing pornography and having some really hideous divorce statistics as well. So do, do we look like we believe in God's design for marriage? The second thing to remember is this. When we call on our neighbors, when we contend for the truth of marriage in the public square, we are calling people to something good. God's design for marriage will lead to human flourishing. Even for people who aren't Christians, God's ways are best. And so when we call people into this life, we're calling them into something good. Believe that and speak up. Fourth, humankind was created to work and labor joyfully to the glory of God. God works. He worked to create the universe. He is at work right now upholding the universe. He is at work to redeem and restore his creation. God works. We're made in his image. We were made to work. Adam and Eve had a job to do before sin came into the world. And from everything we can tell from the book of Revelation, we will be working in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that work is always fun or work is always rewarding. Work can be frustrating. Work can be discouraging. It can it can be a burden because of sin. But work is a good thing. And so Christians work hard for the Lord. Fifth, we have an enemy. Satan is opposed to God and seeks to tempt the people of God through his schemes. We have an enemy 
who will seek to make us question God's word and make us question God's character. The other night, I was having a discussion with some friends at our house uh, about the book of Ephesians, and my wife had a hilarious line. We were talking about the work of the devil in tempting us, and uh, my wife accurately pointed out that for most rank-and-file Christians, Satan doesn't even know who we are. Uh, As she put it, she's a DIY sinner. And that's the truth. Like, it is completely inaccurate to say that every time we sin, like, oh, Satan is tempting me or a demon is tempting me. No, we have a sinful nature that just generates temptation and pulls us towards sin. But we also have an enemy and he will seek to tempt us to despair and to doubt. That is what he is trying to do to keep condemnation and shame upon us. We must learn to recognize his schemes and counter his schemes. Sixth, after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised to provide a redeemer, a redeemer who will both defeat and seemingly be defeated by sin. And this is why Christians have hope. So a possible application point here is, do we live with hope? For us, the Redeemer is has already come. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and we're longing for his return, and therefore we have hope. We have hope when bad things happen. We have hope when good things happen. This world and all the blessings that God gives us in this world is not what we're banking our eternity on. So live like we have hope, hope in heaven, hope that will never fade away and we can never lose. Seventh, we justly deserve judgment for our sins. Were Adam and Eve tempted by Satan? Yes. But were they responsible for their sinful choices? Also yes. And when we sin, my friends, we don't get to blame our parents, our spouse, our friends, our job, the devil. We are responsible, moral agents. And when we sin, we deserve death and hell. But praise be to God, we don't get it. We will, we will die physically one day because of Adam and Eve's sin, but we will live eternally to Jesus because God is so gracious. So when we sin and we don't get hit by a lightning bolt on the spot, understand that is just simply God's grace. We deserve death and instead we get life. So cultivate a heart of gratitude and cultivate a heart that despises sin that hates sin, not only for what it does to us and our family, but most of all, that hates sin for what it does to God and his reputation. Eighth, God provides salvation for his people in the midst of judgment. As it says in Genesis 6, 11 through 14, with the story about the flood and Genesis 19, where God sends the angels to rescue Lot. When God's people are in the midst of sin and wickedness, God will provide salvation. Again, not because they deserve it, as we know that Both Noah and Lot were sinful men, but simply because God chooses to show who he is by both judging sin and rescuing his redeemed. This is the God we serve. So when you feel yourself pressed in on every side, look up. Know that your help is coming. The Lord is coming. And he may not rescue out of whatever situation you find yourself in physically, but he will rescue you from whatever situation you find yourself in eternally. Ninth, God declares sinners righteous by faith. This is how Abraham was saved. I would argue this is how Adam and Eve and Moses and Noah and David and everyone in the Old Testament, all the saints of God, were saved by faith. So examine yourself, my friends. Is there anything in you, is there any part of you that believes that your salvation is due in the smallest part to anything that you've contributed Is it like 99.9% faith, but also like 0.1% I've memorized a lot of the Bible 
or I read, I have my quiet time every day, or I, you know, I never miss church, or I'm a nice person, or I give to missionaries. Find that belief and kill it because we are saved by grace through faith. God gets all the glory. Tenth, signs and seals are important marks of God's covenant. As we see God describing the covenant sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. And as 21st century Christians, we tend to want to skip over parts like that because that's weird. We don't really understand what circumcision has to do. But I would encourage you to stop and think God is wiser than we are. And God knew we were going to read this book. What was he trying to communicate to them? And what is he trying to communicate to us through these signs? We have a very heightened sense of our own intelligence. And I'm afraid that it's probably too high for most of us. I'm trying right now, my wife and I, to teach our children you know, how to read and how to talk and communicate well. And we use you know, flashcards and bright, simple colors and simple objects. And we don't talk about abstract concepts. We give them something they can hold, something they can see and, and taste and touch and hear. And this is what God does. He gives his people very concrete signs to communicate truth to them. And the truth is eternal. So God wants to communicate a truth through circumcision that he wants us to hear as well. So seek to understand. Don't just skip over and say, oh, that's back then. This is different now. Seek to understand because in seeking to understand, it will lead you to Jesus and show you something new about him and something new to worship him for. Eleventh, God protects his chosen people during their sojourning. As we see in Genesis 21 and 2, and really for all of Abraham's story, everywhere he goes, God protects his people, even when they sin. God's protection for us is not contingent on our behavior. Now, certainly we can put ourselves in some really tough situations where we might have some earthly consequences for our sin, but God has promised to protect us. So we can boldly go wherever God tells us, whether it's across the street to share the gospel or to the other side of the world or to a new job or a new church. Wherever God sends us, he goes with us and he has promised to protect us. Twelfth, God fulfills his promises in his time. As we think about the story of Abraham and Sarah called when they were 75 and 65, promised a child that they had to wait 25 years for. But then if you even really zoom out and think about the entire story of the Old Testament, even if you want to start with Abraham as the people of God have been waiting for the blessing to come they had to wait 2,000 years for the Messiah to be born. God will work out his promises in his time. So cultivate a heart of patience and strive to kill our impatience because underneath our impatience, which is something we can see and recognize, there is pride at the root. There is pride that says, I know better than God when I should get what I want. And that, my friends, is sin. And we have to kill that. It's natural to ask for things and to, to want them. That's, that's part of what it means to be a human being. But we must make sure that our wanting does not cross over into demanding, into arrogantly thinking we know better than God what we need and when we need it. Thirteenth, we must obey God by faith even when we cannot see what he is doing. The classic example, the ultimate example of this is Genesis chapter 22 when God demands that Abraham sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham obeys. Abraham gets a lot wrong, but here he is completely right. He trusts God. He doesn't say, well, God, run, tell, tell me how this is all going to work. I, I, need, I need to know the end from the beginning. He says, all right, you said it. I'm going to do it. So ask God to give you that kind of faith, that wherever God says to go, you go. Whatever he says to do, you do. And don't expect him to explain the whole thing to you before you start obeying. 
Understanding comes as we obey, not on the front end. God wants to be trusted and obeyed. Not obeyed if you can explain yourself. Number 14, God freely chooses some for salvation by his grace. This is how God has always operated. He freely chooses. We see this illustrated in Genesis 25, verses 21 through 23, as God says to Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, as she's pregnant with twins, he says that I'm choosing the younger, Jacob, to bless. And I'm choosing before they're even born so they can be absolutely clear. It's not based on their merits, but my freedom to choose. So friends, if you are a Christian, praise God, but you are a Christian by his grace, not because you're smarter or better or you figured something out, but because God chose to extend grace to you. And it is a gift to be thankful for, not something to boast over. Fifteenth, God graciously uses circumstances to transform his people. This is illustrated for us in the story of Jacob. Jacob is, well, he's kind of a dirtbag. Right? When we meet him, he is lying to his blind father. He is extorting his desperate brother. He's a trickster. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He is a, a bit of a coward. And yet God chooses him, again, before he's born, not based on his own behavior, certainly. But as God walks with Jacob, he transforms Jacob into someone who trusts God. doesn't mean he's perfect. Jacob's not sinless and perfect at the end of his life. But God transforms people. He chooses people by his grace. He transforms people by his grace. And 16th, God turns evil into good for the salvation of his people. And here I will read Genesis 50, verse 20. As Joseph, who we know his story, sold into slavery by his brother, sent down to Egypt, falsely accused, thrown into a dungeon for a crime he didn't commit, and then elevated to second in command in Egypt to save not only the lives of the world, but the life of the family of the Redeemer, Abraham's family. He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And in many ways, friends, that is the banner over the entire book of Genesis, that God's people keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and God keeps graciously transforming it into good. And this is the God we serve. He is a God of creation. He's also a God of transformation. So friends, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider what, if any, of these areas do you need change in and identify that and seek it in prayer and go after it with all of your heart and trust that God will meet you and will be glorified in your attempts to please him. Friends, next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to begin an examination of the book of Exodus. But for now, take up and read. God bless.